Welcome to Kernels of Nutrition, the podcast series powered by the Alma Board of California. My name is Rosie Long. I'm an AFN registered associate nutritionist. And in this series, I'll be chatting to some of the leading nutrition professionals in the UK about their experiences and about how they successfully communicate health and nutrition messages through the work that they do. This podcast is part of the Almond Board of California's Almond Academy, a learning and development platform developed by health professionals to help other nutritionists and dietitians advance and refine their existing skills. Visit almonds.co.uk to listen to other podcasts in the series, sign up to the Almond Board's Nutrition Bulletin, and access all other Almond Academy resources. With me today is registered dietitian Tanya Hafner. During her almost 30-year career, she has advised and supported organisations, stakeholders and the public on nutrition and sustainability. As founder and CEO of Nutrilicious and MyNutriWeb, Tanya works with multiple partners and stakeholders to deliver initiatives and training resources designed to support healthy, sustainable diets. Her interest in sustainable diets started from a young age. She found a passion for food, health and the environment at a time when it was a largely unspoken topic. Tanya recently received a role of honour from the BDA for her leadership and contribution in the development of the BDA's groundbreaking One Blue Dot report and toolkit on sustainable diets. Hello, Tanya. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, So let's start by hearing a little bit more about your background, about how you developed your passion for sustainable nutrition. Okay, so I suppose for me, it goes way back to the 1980s. So I feel very old saying that. Um, I grew up in rural Ireland, uh, formerly by the sea in County Waterford. For anybody who hasn't been there, I highly recommend it. Uh, on the south coast and laterally in County Tipperary in the Midlands and I suppose I was a an impressionable teenager um, but surrounded by very wise and interesting people who I am always so grateful for very kind caring and very much in touch with nature I would say Um, one of them in particular was my dad who I had a great relationship with Um, he was so in touch with our ecosystem he was always sharing how interdependent everything was he could tell you when it was and it wasn't going to be a good season to what was troubling the bees and generally most things about science and nature so he's a real intellect and I think for me he was fantastic Um, his intellect never really matched mine. I I actually had learning challenges. I couldn't read until the age of eight. And um, despite that not being recognized at the time, um, as I've only recently been diagnosed with dyslexia, I gained all the support that I needed because he was so patient with me. He was finding visual ways for me to learn um, and help others to teach me uh, in that way. But he could teach about anybody and he was a tremendous communicator and a tremendous learner. Um, He had books galore around the house. Um, collected by any possible source. I think one of his favourites was uh, a charity shops. Um, But in his collection, I found when I was a teenager, I think around 15, um, a book called Diet for a Small Planet by an amazing lady called Frances Moore Lappe. And this was first written in the 1970s. And she really wanted to start a revolution in the way that Americans ate. Um, But she pretty much covered how this needed to be a global revolution. And it totally changed the way that I looked at food at that age. I was completely blown away by all of the evidence, all of the facts, so carefully collected together in this hugely important topic. And I learned overnight that effectively, if we didn't change the way that we were sourcing our food, our planet would cease to exist. But remarkably, within this book, and I would suggest it as a read because it's even so highly relevant today, lay all kinds of solutions if only governments and society at large could be aware and listen. So it really opened my eyes at an impressionable age. So we were not farmers, um, but we had friends and some family who were farmers. We were very much in touch with the issues and challenges. And in fact, one of my favorite memories as a teenager was sitting around the dinner table uh, with our farming friends where no subject was off limit and where all the children were valued and encouraged to share opinion. 
performing was obviously a hot topic. And at this time, there was um, the meat scandal in Ireland, uh, one of many, I'm afraid. And the Department of Agriculture discovered um, the widespread um, illegal use of senbuterol in cattle, um, legal growth hormone promoter called angel dust. Uh, it was found to be across the, the meat supply chain. And I knew about the reality of this. Farming friends who did not use it had been finding it very hard to get their cattle sold. They would turn up to the cattle market, could only look at their cattle compared to the enormous size of the other cattle who were fed the um, illegal angel dust. So my contribution was to go vegetarian, <laughs> which I did for 15 years. And I'm still mostly vegetarian, although now these days I have meat every now and again. Um, so those were two kind of, I think, uh, points that really impacted me professionally. But the final one was when <laughs> at 15, I entered the Cook of All Ireland competition and um, something similar, I suppose, to the lines of the Bake Off um, today. And there I had some fantastic mentors, um, both in my home economics teacher, a lady called Mary Marr, who I'm in touch with today, and my mother, who encouraged me to enter and supported me all the way from the locals to the regionals to the national competition, which was then filmed in Dublin, um, where I was given an escort at 15, uh, wined and dined um, all around Dublin with celebrities and other finalists for the week and I won it and I believe I gained much of my confidence at that time from my mother drilling belief in me that I could achieve anything I decided to which was something I really needed when I was someone who struggled at least initially uh, with the traditional um, school system. So what's really interesting about this competition is that, it, that this national competition for the first time covered not only creating delicious food but they wanted to see nutritious food so you had to create a menu around a special occasion to provide evidence for why it was nutritious and I did this with great care and attention and, and joy and I really uh, enjoyed considering the nutritious side but I also managed to incorporate sustainability as a bonus and I think the judging panel really liked that and on the judging panel was a dietitian and she was flown in from London, and she impacted me profoundly, really. I remember quizzing her about her job, uh, and when it was all over, I told my parents, that's it, that's what I'm going to do. And first off, I had to go and find my headmistress and convince her that I could switch from geography to chemistry, and I could do it in my final year, and I had to quickly find a tutor, really, to support me. Um, and also of interest, I think, to, to dietitians really and nutritionists is that at this time, my mom and I found two dietitians in Ireland to visit. There were only two. Um, I think there are now 800 in Ireland. And I met the first ever dietitian in Ireland working in public health, and she was focused on heart health. And she kindly allowed me to shadow her. And I could see that I didn't want to work in hospitals, but I wanted to have an impact on the food system. And that was it. That's new. That that's I knew then. That's where I had to really start. And and the final point about that, when I actually reflect on it, is that my poor parents, while they were right behind me, they were met with comments from various people at the time who were at a real loss as to what the hell I was doing. You know, wanting to work in food and health and become a dietitian was virtually unheard of, and it was not thought to be a good idea. So I think that's where I began, Rosie. Wow. Long answer it's, to your question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's such an incredible, inspiring route to the dietetic profession, though. And um, it's amazing that you had this realization about the importance of sustainability from such a young age. I think many of us are only really starting to consider it um, as a really important topic now. Um, so, what are the things that you think fellow dietitians and nutritionists really need to know about sustainability? Um, I think, look, sustainability um, and sustainability related to the food system is without a doubt hugely complex. Um, there's no doubt about it. Yet there are some things I think everyone must take on board, as, particularly as a nutritionist and as a dietitian, in my view. Um, I think, number one, nutrition considered 
without sustainability in almost every area of practice, I would argue. They are inextricably uh, linked together. And food and the way that we eat really is the strongest lever to optimise human health and environmental sustainability on Earth. And the food that we're eating is just threatening both ourselves and our planet. Um, and unhealthy diets now pose a greater risk to morbidity and mortality, i.e. ill health and deaths than unsafe sex, alcohol, drug and tobacco use combined. And we all know this as dietitians and nutritionists, but less well known is the fact that this same food system is the single biggest driver behind global environmental change, i.e. degradation. And um, I think many of the changes that we are seeing, such as scarcity of water, deforestation, land degradation, biodiversity losses, increase in greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera, they're all associated with our unsustainable production of food. We're completely out of sync with planet and nature. And as food experts, we absolutely must be part of the solution. It's incumbent um, upon us. And I think that we're only beginning in all honesty in the dietetic and the nutrition profession to really appreciate this. We're not there yet in fully applying it. And there's no judgment in that. It's just that we've not really been trained in this area. It's not been at the forefront. But now is the time and all the stars I feel are aligned for this to be taking place. And it's fantastic to start seeing this. You know, we can see this coming through in the training, albeit sporadic. There is a significant uplift. There was nothing in my day. No one was interested in covering it. So this is this is fantastic. But importantly, um, it is in the plans for the new national food strategy. So I attend the all parliamentary group meetings on the national food strategy and sustainability alongside nutrition considerations are being integrated, which I'm really delighted to see. And of course, public awareness is shooting up. So I think overall, really in answer to your question, number one, I think let's get upskilled in sustainability right across the professions and ensure that sustainability is integrated in all um, practice and communications. Um, I think there are some other key points after that. There's probably two more. There's multiple ones, but I'll just pick two. Um, I think number two is that we, we do have to reduce our animal consumption. Um, and we have to help the public to achieve this. We know this from all leading national and global reviews on nutrition and sustainability, including the UK's National Healthy Eating Guidelines, the Eat Well Guide. And so we must do this for health and planet, but achieving this is undoubtedly complex for all kinds of reasons, not least of all, you know, our human behavior. Um, but there are also economic and political challenges, of course, and farmers ultimately in this country and other countries rely on meat and dairy production. So we have to understand this. We have to be empathetic to the farming system and work together with them. Um, and they ultimately have to be given the support that they need through better farming policies and grants. And this is hugely um, important. Um, I think the final thing really is, is that we need to eat more plant proteins. And this includes legumes, nuts and seeds. And it's very clear um, in the policies around the world that that's what we must do. We have to rise to that challenge. And one last thing in relation to all of these points that I like to state um, and highlight is that really we know the science around all of this and nutrition. We can reduce meat and dairy and eat more plant proteins and still eat optimally in terms of nutrition. And I personally get a little bit impatient with people who challenge that data when we have all of that data and they're not really paying um, attention to it. We've really got to go with that with that evidence. And I think it, it's time to say, let's move on from this in terms of population guidance and take the real challenge at hand and use all of our communication and lobbying skills to, you know, to affect the change that we really urgently need to see. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And just especially on your first point there around the lack of training. Um, I know when I was at university, sustainability really wasn't that much of a focus. And that was only, you know, six years ago um, that I graduated. So, um, you know, I've gone looking for further training as I've got an interest in sustainability and, and being able to advise in that. Um, aspect but it's really hard to find something that is that offers exactly what what we're looking for and has that good balance of nutrition and sustainability it's it's not easy it's not it's really not I think well in my lifetime it's it's mostly self-taught really <clears throat> as you said there hasn't been you know formal learning until recently which is really incredible considering that we knew back half a century ago that if we didn't change we just wouldn't have a planet to live on all too soon. Um, and of course, much of that is, is related to our human behavior, to the economics and the politics. And that side of things that's been open to me, where I can play an empathetic role and work together with people, you know, is really exciting. And we're beginning to see that change playing out in all kinds of, of arenas. Um, it's just unfortunate it takes time and effort uh, when you know we have such urgency but it's, it's yeah it's mm. the way it's been yeah no exactly and and as you said we are starting to see changes now and even in dietary guidelines they're starting to change um, so can you explain a little bit more about what the UK dietary guidelines advise around eating sustainably? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the things that was a massively forward was the revision of the Eat Well Guide back in um, 2016. It was a really fantastic to see that they'd considered sustainability for the first time in the UK. Um, but I'm always surprised at how many health professionals don't realise how much sustainability was actually integrated into these guidelines and considered within the data. And I think personally, I think that all comes down to lack of funding into the communications, you know, of the guidelines um, at the time. But the, the main food group segments were resized um, at this time. And of particular interest were number one, dairy and alternatives. These were almost halved, um, going from 15 down to 8% of the plate. Um, and it was really shown that calcium is so ubiquitous in the UK diet. We get it in so many different places that you do not have to have the amount of dairy that was previously recommended to meet the requirements for calcium. And then calcium fortified and unsweetened dairy alternatives were then featured more prominently within the plate. So dairy is still there, but down by half. And you can rely on fortified or increased fortified alternatives. Um, the protein segment, although making up the same proportion as previously, it was significantly revamped to embrace sustainability and the need really for more plant-based protein consumption with other proteins, including soya and microproteins um, being included. So that was interesting. And the meat recommendations were effectively halved. Um, and fish was to be from a sustainable source. And also at the same time, fruit and vegetables went up. It went up by about 7%, making 40% of the plate. And there was a bigger push for whole grain carbs up by 5%, making 38% of the plate. So these were the key um, changes. Now, they could have been more draconian in my personal view, of course, um, but they choose to take a very um, pragmatic, practical stance, which is very understandable in consideration of uh, the population's behaviour change um, that, you know, that we've alluded to. And the benefits of adopting these changes that they had set at this time, which were laid out in the Scarborough paper, for anybody who hasn't read it, I would highly recommend it, it's an open access paper, um, if everyone was to adopt these changes, we would actually see a 31% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, a 34% reduction in land use, 17% reduction in water use, and we would see an increase in 17.9 million years of healthy lives. So that's pretty um, significant change, I think, for, for the Eat Well Guides. And I think it was a really good place to, to start from. And I know there are those that would say we have to move more quickly. We have to be more brutal. Um, but we also know, again, about uh, population change. And, and really, when you think about that, we knew at the time in, in 2016, 
the pre in terms of the previous guidelines, only one percent of the population were actually achieving Eat Well Guide, and we know since that 0.1 percent are achieving the latest uh, guidelines. So how on earth? Are we going to move 100% of the population to, to, to achieve these steps? Um, so I think at this time, I overall, I was very pleased to see these. Um, and at this point, I was lucky enough to start conversations with the British Dietetic Association, who were very keen to listen and do more. There was a policy on sustainability at the time, but it was out of date. It wasn't very applied and it wasn't very well known really amongst the professions. And we asked the question really, what can we do with dietitians so that they can really be believing and driving um, sustainability? And I think this ended up being, in my opinion, being a perfect example of a partnership you know, across sectors. So we were able to contribute our expertise from uh, as dietitians from a communications agency, we were able to bring in expertise from the commercial sector. So we brought in the nutrition and dietetic and sustainability team from Alpro. And of course, they are light years ahead in terms of any sector. They were founded in sustainability over 20 odd years ago. And so they have an incredible amount of expertise that they were able to lend um, to the project. So I think that was that was really interesting. And really, this is when one blue dot recommendations from the BDA were born. And this was a very exciting project to work on. And I envisaged actually really interesting at the time that we would be developing inspirational tools and resources for dietitians and nutritionists to share on with different public groups. However, we discovered through both our qualitative research and our quantitative research, the dietitians first needed to be convinced of the science behind sustainability. They had a lot of reservations and concerns around nutrition for sustainable eating. And so the first we first needed to address this. And the first part of the project and the campaign was really to draw together the science in a language and a way that would resonate with the profession and get them really excited and then follow up with the practical tools. So it was very exciting and a real privilege to be part, you know, of, of helping to bring that about. Um, so, yes, that's my long answer, Rosie, <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember when um, when the BDA's um, One Blue Dot report came out and it was groundbreaking, really. And I think um, still now people make reference to how much attitude towards sustainability in nutrition and dietetics has changed since the report came out. Um, I think we really had our eyes opened a bit and I think we needed that. We we needed it to be laid out in front of us and with a powerful message um, because, yeah, the Eat Well um, guide was updated, but did it say clearly in black and white that there was sustainability running through it? And I think we really needed it kind of straight in our faces and saying, no, you really need to pay attention here. Um, so just thinking about how we compare, I suppose, to other countries across Europe and, and across the globe, are there any other countries that are doing better than us in the UK and pushing harder? Yes, it's, it's a really good question. And I think there's a lot of countries who are active now, thank goodness, um, and comparing against each other, which is interesting. But there's a lot of complexity with that because it depends on what your local targets are and, of course, how you're measuring. So it's not always straightforward. But overall, globally, for those who don't know, um, we have since had the Eat Lancet guidelines, which came out about a year after One Blue Dot uh, in 2019. And this was groundbreaking as well. It was a global, gave global considerations and recommendations, which on the face of it look brutal, uh, which include recommendations, for example, aiming to limit meat to no more than, say, for example, 98 grams of red meat, pork, beef or lamb a week, which would, which would equate also to just over 200 grams of poultry, just less than 200 grams of fish a week. So this would be like, whoa, for the majority of the UK population when you consider that most people are eating meat every day and when, for example, a regular steak is 200 grams, uh, for example, um, as would be the same for chicken breast. 
Um, but when you look closer and consider that these really are global recommendations, they have to be applied differently and appropriately to each country, which Eat Lancet clearly states. So, for example, some of the very poor countries who rely very heavily on their livestock for protein should not be penalised at this time. Um, it would just be catastrophic a catastrophe for them um, to have such recommendations really in these countries. Whereas in the UK, it's absolutely important to cut down on our meat consumption. It's incumbent upon us to do so. We have the means to do so. So these guidelines need to be applied locally. And in, in consideration, I would say, of cultural needs, economics, um, as well as farming policy. So it's all very complex and nuanced. And to answer your question specifically, I would say that the Nordic countries are doing very well. I love reading about what they're doing. Um, they are more advanced in applying their guidelines to practice. Um, Denmark, for example, have already applied this to portion sizes, and they've started to apply that to their communications as well, both to their stakeholders and to the public. And we've just not achieved that yet, uh, for example, within the UK. So I think they are really the countries to watch out right now. I think of interest as well is um, food labelling. So there is an eco score. It's not out yet. And I think it will be some time that's gaining interest. Um, and it combines both nutritional and environmental scoring. It's sort of based on the Nutri-Score labelling system that's been developed by France. And there are other countries looking at labelling schemes um, that incorporate sustainability, but in my mind, they've got a, a very long way to go. Um, but the UK is active and we are beginning to see, for example, retailers taking on huge commitments around um, sustainability and relating it finally to food. Um, we're aware of research groups at Oxford um, at WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, and the World Resources Institute, who are all actively looking at applying the recommendations practically um, to different target groups in the UK. So I think it's watch this space. Um, it's not going fast enough for me, but I'm really hopeful and much more hopeful than I've ever been, you know, in knowing this. And I mean, it's all so complex. And I think you know, generally we're taking the Eat Well Guide, One Blue Dot, Eat Lancet's planetary diets into consideration. I think the simple advice for consumers for a more healthy and sustainable diet is to eat mostly plants with less meat consumption. But just thinking um, here around almonds as well, um, I know the conversations around sustainability with healthy plant-based staples such as soya and nuts, they're not free of criticism either. So, you know, if I focus in on almonds as the example, there's concerns around the amount of water used to grow the crop. Um, and as nutrition professionals, we know that almonds are a healthy food. They provide plant-based protein, healthy fats. They're packed with nutrients. Um, and simply put, growing plant-based foods that are rich in protein does require more water to produce than the plants that um, are starch rich, so like fruits and vegetables. So when consuming plant protein, water use is inevitable. Um, but 80% of the world's almonds are grown in California, which is a region where water can be scarce. So it is really important to use water wisely. Um, and I think this is why the almond farm farmers in California are so committed to growing almonds in a more responsible way. The Almond Board supports this through research, development, they implement new water practices that can minimise the impact of growing almonds on the environment. So what are your thoughts around this kind of hypercriticism, I suppose, of these plant-based staples? You know, where do we go from that? Yeah, I mean, it's so important and you're absolutely correct. Um, I think <clears throat> the thing for me here is that all sectors of the food system have to show big improvements. And if we are to blacklist all foods that have some controversy, we would end up eating few foods and lack diversity. I think the reality is that we still need a variety of foods in the diet from different sources in order to be healthy. And I think all of these foods need to be showing how they are moving the dial on sustainability. And what I mean by foods, I mean the producers or the manufacturers and openly communicating this you know and if they're then moving the dial then that's a win and I'm generally in 
And I think when you're looking at particular food categories, you need to be careful about how you make a judgment on that category or product without having all of your facts um, in front of you. And unfortunately, that happens an awful lot in the media, which really leads to a lot of misinformation. So let's take soya um, for human consumption. It's something I've covered for years, you know, and it's criticized because, you know, in inverted commas, it, it takes down the rainforest. But if you actually look at the data, the soy in the rainforest is actually grown to feed cattle primarily, and you need so much to feed the cattle. And that's what's impacting on the environment there, the rainforest. And if we weren't producing meat um, on the industrial sc scale, really, that we're doing today, then we just would simply wouldn't have this situation. So most of the soya for human consumption is not grown in the rainforest. So you've got to make the distinction here, and you've really got to have your research and facts right when it's so complex. And I think the same really can be said for almonds. So when we were working on one blue dot, we knew that water usage among almonds was much higher than other categories, but it's all relative. Life is relative. It's one of my biggest lessons. I'm always thinking about that when I'm making a scientific or, or nutrition judgment on something. And almonds really do use you know, in many cases, the same amount of water as other nuts and considerably less than animal products. So I think it goes back to moving that dial. You know, how much is that sector moving that dial? Um, what I've learned about what's happening in the almond orchard is that 33%, there's a 33% reduction in the usage of water grown to produce a pound of almonds with a commitment to reduce by a further 20% by 2025. So that's huge. That's, that's really moving the dial. And the fact that water usage alone is not the sole barometer for assessing whether a food is sustainable it doesn't consider the different nutritional values each food offers, for example. And also, you know, you need to consider things like land use and CO2 emissions. And almonds can be lower in carbon emissions when compared to other nutrient-rich foods. You know, the almond trees capture and store a significant amount of carbon over their 25-year cycle, which is really important. Um, and I think what I've also learned is that almonds are shipped. They're not flown to Europe. And again, you know, how is your food brought to this country? That's really important. And this means that the shelf life is, is maximized and carbon emissions are minimized and the shipment via car, cargo ship has the lowest um, emissions um, and certainly compared to, to the plane. So, yeah, that's my, my thoughts really on that, Rosie. Yeah, absolutely. It really is relative, exactly what you said there. And um, I think the the almond farmers in California recognise this need to conserve water, um, to grow almonds. I think it is something that is so paramount to their livelihoods. You know, they know they need water to grow almonds and the farms are family farms and they want to pass it on. Um, but I think one of the points that I've always found so fascinating is the fact that the water used to grow almonds doesn't doesn't just grow the almonds that we eat. There are three more products that come out of this production. So obviously the kernel is the almond that we all know and love and that we eat, but that is protected by a hull and a shell and it also grows on the tree. And as you mentioned, the trees store carbon. So at the end of their life cycle, they are transformed into electricity at the end. So that's incredible. Um, and the, the shells become livestock bedding. The hulls are a nutritious dairy feed. And as you mentioned, again, dairy feed takes a lot of water to produce. So that reduces the amount of water needed to grow other feed crops. Um, and, you know, we've also talked about the need for cattle, animal products to reduce. Um, and as the uses from dairy feed and bedding decreases, the researchers are also looking into these other uses, these really innovative uses, which I find fascinating, such as recycling, um, strengthening recycled plastics, making tea, beer, kombucha. Um, and so I think using and recycling these kind of co-products or byproducts of the almond production really offsets some of almonds water footprint because it isn't just one thing it's lots and lots of things that we're using that water for um, and I think that's fascinating um, and as we all start to develop this kind of deeper understanding of sustainable agriculture 
what are the key measures that you think we really need to know in order to kind of fully understand sustainably sustainability progress goals that are laid out by industry so as you mentioned there the the arm board have set out their progress goals to achieve by 2025 which includes you know reducing the amount of water used to grow a pound of almonds by an additional 20 percent achieving zero waste in their orchards by putting everything to kind of optimal use um, and increasing the adoption of kind of environmentally friendly pest management tools how do we decipher how meaningful these types of commitments by industries are Yes, it. <laughs> I think this is the million dollar question really at the moment. Um, and I think I would be a millionaire if I was able to, to answer that easily. So a tough one, Rosie. <laughs> um, I think in an ideal world, one of the biggest challenges is how you not only measure all of the planetary boundaries, be it water, nitrogen balance, pollinators, etc., where it's not always actually possible to measure these, but also how you communicate them in a way that's understood. I think that that's the biggest challenge. And we've just not got there yet. So right now, practically, I think it really comes back to whether a brand and organization, such as a retailer, is actually moving the dial for now. And they have to decide on what that dial is and how they're going to measure it and how they're going to be open and transparent about it. Um, I think that's what people are really dealing with. And we're seeing lots of organizations, including manufacturers and retailers, all racing to devise some sort of measuring scheme on sustainability for the products that they sell and the labeling around them too. And the challenge will be, I think that um, if you have one retailer doing something different to the next, it may well lead to confusion in the mind of the consumer. So for me, communication will be king to both the consumer and their stakeholders. And it's something that I worry about a bit, that this may damage the progress that we so desperately need to see. And I would like to see some kind of rules and regulations or some kind of watchdog approach to this, I think, ideally. Um, However, In the meantime, there are measures that we can actively look for. So, for example, has a food improved their carbon footprint or they've reduced their water usage, um, for example? Um, Do they have a sustainability strategy? You know, look for it. Um, So the almond industry is a good example. We're with the almonds today. So it is a good example of a category moving the dial. You know, as we've mentioned, they've reduced their water usage by 33% and they have further commitments to reduce this by another 20% by 2025. And almond practices, production practices, are offsetting 50% of their carbon emissions with the aims to be carbon neutral or even negative in the future. And as you mentioned, they are also a zero waste food because they are using everything that they have produced, which is quite extraordinary. So I think farmers here have been terribly innovative and we've got an awful lot to learn. And, you know, seeing learning across sectors, again, is something else that I'd like to to see more of. Um, Some manufacturers have devised labels indicating, for example, that there has been no deforestation, which is good. It's helpful to a degree, but we need to be thinking about all of the planetary boundaries, you know, within our whole ecosystem, in my mind. Um, I did mention the eco score being developed earlier, and that is gaining interest and combines, as we said, both nutrition and environmental issues. It's sort of based on that Nutri score developed in France, but it has a long way to go in all of these labeling schemes, really. Um, we have to consider how much of an impact I think um, it will have on consumer understanding and behavior too. Um, it will help, I believe, the well-informed, the well-educated, the fit well, but will it impact others? And I think these are really important questions that we need to be asking um, in terms of our communications. Um, people do ask me about B Corp and organic And if companies have these labels, are they sustainable? Um, For those who don't know B Corp, um, it's short for Certified B Corporation. It's the term used for any uh, for-profit entity that is certified voluntarily 
meeting higher standards of transparency, accountability and performance. And it includes sustainability, but it's not yet great in nutrition. Um, it also really is down to self-assessment self and it relies on spot checking. I think it's a great step forward. It shows transparency, um, but it's not, you know, it's not the holy grail yet. Um, I think regarding organic, organic stands almost 100% for sustainability. It's enshrined in sustainability. That's its heritage, if not 100%. You know, the land is used well. There's no non-organic fertilizers. It's in tune with nature. However, there are some provisors when it comes to nutrition. Um, so, for example, you know, and there are a few for some products, they can't be fortified if they're organic when we need them to be fortified from a public health um, perspective. So, for example, organic plant based alternatives to milk cannot be fortified with some vitamins and minerals by law. So there are you know, some complexities and challenges there. I think. The last thing that I would focus on in relation to your question is the important point about health professionals talking to individuals, you know, about their contribution. And we can help individuals assess their overall diet. We can teach them tools and ways of doing this, you know, looking at how much meat they're consuming, how often have they cut down on their own um, food portion sizes, have they, are they looking at their water usage and their waste at home? And if we consider just UK households um, alone still waste 4.5 million tonnes of food a year that could have been eaten worth 14 billion, which amounts to 700 pounds for an average family with children, according to RAP, which is the UK's Waste and Resources Action Programme. That's just astounding. There's huge changes we can be making individually and at home, and we can be helping them um, as nutrition and food advisors. You know, these are meaningful steps that can be taken at home in combination with larger industries making, you know, huge changes as well. Wow, yeah. I mean, just those figures there about the food waste is just, it's mind-blowing. Um, but I noticed that as you were talking about the the retailers devising the consumer-facing kind of rating system for sustainability, it really got me thinking a little bit about, you know, we know some foods kind of come with this health halo because they have, they're, and they're able to display a big health claim on the label, but also they may be high in fat, salt or sugar. Um, so they're not necessarily healthy. Do you think there's a risk of us greenwashing in food as well if they were to introduce planetary labelling system? Yes, it's a really important consideration. Look, um, some manufacturers have devised labels indicating, for example, that there's been no deforestation, which is good, it's helpful. But we need to be thinking about all planetary boundaries, you know, our whole ecosystem. And I think sometimes that is lost. Look, all life on Earth and human civilization are sustained by vital biogeochemical systems, which are all in very delicate balance. However, our species, due largely to our rapid population growth and explosive consumption, is really destabilizing these Earth processes and endangering the stability of the safe operating space, really, for all humanity. And scientists have noted now nine planetary boundaries beyond which we just cannot push our Earth system without putting our societies at risk. And these are climate change, biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, ozone depletion, atmospheric aerosol pollution, freshwater use, biogeochemical flows of nitrogen and phosphorus, land system change, and the release of novel chemicals. So humanity is already existing outside the safe operating space for at least four of these nine boundaries. And the best way to prevent overshoot, researchers say, is to revamp our energy and our food systems. So how is all of this going to be communicated on a useful label? Um, so it's an obviously a hugely challenging um, issue. And as it stands, there are hundreds of eco-labels, but as you suggest, they run the risk of greenwashing. 
um, i.e. claiming that they're eco-friendly when in fact that they are not. And I mentioned earlier the EcoScore being developed, which is very exciting. Some say it's coming out very soon, which I don't really understand in view of all of the complexities, um, but it's gaining huge interest, um, combining both nutritional and environmental issues. And the aim, of, of course, is to empower consumers to help them to make sustainable choices and it would be helpful to achieve a single harmonized environmental label but in my view it does have a long way to go and in all of these labeling schemes we really have to consider how much of an impact it's going to have on consumer understanding at the end of the day and ultimately our behavior too it could certainly in my view help the well-educated and the informed and the fit well who will dig deep for this information but will it really impact on others i.e the majority of the people not necessarily digging deep uh, for this information these are all important questions to be answered and considered as this is all hopefully being very carefully um, developed. But I think more importantly, it's my belief that I would like to see, I think some regulation coming in around this, an independent watchdog or an organization supporting and overseeing how producers, manufacturers and retailers are all moving the dial on planetary boundaries. That is my big wish above kind of basic consumer um, labeling. And I think each industry member in the meantime needs to be setting out their own goals and measures already for moving that dial. Um, but they need to be called to task on it to make sure real progress has been made. And it should be publicly available so that everyone can examine and see this progress. And that would be my recommendation to Dimbleby on pulling together our national food strategy over and above gaining consumer labelling. Mm, wow, thank you so much for sharing that because that's, I think it just showcases how complex it all is. But um, I, I think what you were saying there really progresses the real measurement here. So um, when we're thinking about sustainable food production as nutrition professionals, you know, there's a need to be pragmatic and able to strike the right balance between good nutrition and sustainability. Um, how do we as nutrition professionals ensure that we're promoting a diet that's good for you as well as being good for the planet? Yeah, I think the, the answer to that always comes back to and relates to, you know, who are you giving advice to? you know, and knowing your audience and really then agreeing your goals. So are you giving general population advice? Are you giving advice to an organization such as a retailer or a place of work um, or a manufacturer? Or are you a health professional with an individual um, in front of you? I think the rule of thumb for me is to follow Eat Well and follow the sustainable principles um, within that for your target audience, according to their interests, their capabilities and their needs. Um, and again, it would be a step-by-step -step, um, approach in your communications. You know, but could you, for example, be working with a group that's highly motivated or an individual who may even go beyond eat well? You know, if we consider Generation Z, you know, those people born from 1997 onwards, they may be highly motivated. You may be actually be able to move the dial even further. Um, so, again, it's considering really who's, who's in front of you. But whoever you're working with, begin by knowing them through your assessments, you know, as we do as health professionals with individuals you train to do. Um, or through your quantitative or qualitative work when working with an organization in order to formulate, you know, what's really going to inspire. Um, you know, we know we don't change easily as humans. We're trained to know this as dietitians and nutritionists. And, um, you know, we want to change. 50% of the population want to make change for global benefits, but they don't actually do so. Um, so it's about thinking with the group or the individual that's in front of you, what's really going to be the best way to move that dial on sustainability? Um, and I think that's what we have to think of, you know, and what, what's our end goal? Your end goal might be better nutrition sustainability, but the motivation point and the communication point might be around cost or social connection, for example. So for me, it's all in the assessment. It's all in the insights and the preparation and the planning. And that's where I get really excited um, in then creating, 
you know, the comms that are going to work. Yeah, 100%. I think that is so, so important. And I think sometimes it can be really hard as nutrition professionals to know like how hard to push. I think especially if you feel passionately about something like sustainability, there is sometimes a feeling that maybe we need to tone down conversations about planetary diets for the fear of coming across too political, perhaps, or, or being too opinionated. How do you balance the politics of such an emotive topic in yeah. your work? It, it can be challenging at times when you, you do feel passionate. I think that goes for anybody who's passionate about what they do. But, you know, in your communications, you can hardly ever put your individual view on it. You know, when you're thinking about behavior change, really, nine times of, out of 10, it just doesn't work. It's very rare. You know, we're trained as nutritionists and dietitians to, to not put our personal views Um, on things to put them to one side and think again about the person the organization in front of you it's all about knowing your audience again using your best insights behavior change and that's really what it all comes down to for me Mm. yeah um and I think it it may may be easier as there has been a real surge of interest in sustainable diets in recent years and many consumers and health professionals um, may have been influenced by documentaries such as Seaspiracy and Cowspiracy, um, and they are very emotive. So what are your thoughts on these types of documentaries? Yeah, wow. They were wow, weren't they? Um, look, Seaspiracy, for example, is a piece of investigative journalism addressing sustainable fishing. And what I didn't like about it was the spread of some misinformation Um, That can do a lot of untold, unnecessary damage. What I did like about these documentaries is the shock tactics. Um, We need them or something like them to change our behavior um, sometimes regarding how we're, but particularly how we're treating our planet. And we do need this with urgency. You know, we've alluded to, you know, our slow behavior, shock tactics work, and they can change things overnight in terms of opinion and buy-in. So one example is my brother-in-law. You know, he's a very caring, highly intelligent, professional human being. And I, I would sit with him maybe five or six years ago and talk to him about our meat consumption and sustainability, you know, nice conversation. Um, where he was inquisitive about it. And he was a big meat eater. He comes from a Spanish family. He loves meat, but he just wasn't having it. Um, But when he watched one of these documentaries, you know, it was life-changing for him. And he has totally changed the way that he eats. You know, it really helped to open his eyes. But of course, you know, there were some untruths about what he learned you know and there there's danger in that too so I'm not saying they're fantastic I'm just saying that shock tactics are sometimes what it takes to make change and I'd like to see film producers consulting with more dietitians and registered nutritionists to put the messaging into context to ensure that viewers really follow through with the diet that is actually good for them and the planet too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, maybe these documentaries do actually offer us some sort of positive opportunity to follow them up with motivating um, yet evidence-based advice. And um, I suppose following on from that, what resources can nutrition professionals refer to for trusted information on this topic? Yeah, thankfully we have more, um, which is is just great to see. Uh, so exciting to see. Um, of course, I'm going to say this. You know, mynutriweb.com, which I founded, is a trusted source of nutrition learning for professionals, and we have lots of wonderful webinars on sustainability, and there will be a lot more. So that's a good place to go to. Obviously, the British Dietetic Association is part of One Blue Dot Toolkit. Um, which they they launched. Um, They now have a PowerPoint presentation for academics to use in universities so that students can learn too. And you can access that on on their website. So I would say keep an eye on One Blue Dot. It's constantly being updated. It's a great tool and it's actually being emulated now in other countries. Um, I can't say that Eat Well really offers anything that's in great shape at the moment. That's quite critical. But again, it's down to budget around the the Eat Well communication. 
And I think there is a real opportunity for organisations in food and health to get highly creative on Eat Well. It's not happened yet. And there's a big opportunity to apply fantastic communication skills here. The Eat Well Guide is well researched. It's never been communicated um, well to the public in my mind. So, um, but where to go to in terms of other resources, I would definitely say eatforum.org. So that's the Eat Lancet work. Um, lots of resources, great video content. Um, you can hear some great expert speakers. Um, so I definitely recommend that. And also WWF, of course, you know, the World Wildlife Fund. They have a tremendous amount of information on, you know, on their website. And if you're really keen, I'd suggest you get involved with COP21, you know, the UK's hosting the biggest sustainability event ever, you know, in November this year. And I'm really quite excited to see, you know, what progress we, you know, we, we might be making around that. Um, so I think they're my top go-tos right now. Of course there is, sorry, there is w, the WHO and website. They they're also have fantastic resources. I should mention that. So that's it. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. That's so comprehensive. And um, we'll share the link to all of those in the show notes so that people can check those out. Um, and finally, I just, how do we translate all of this information into that simple and motivating message for clients um, that isn't scary or overwhelming? So is our core message simply eat more plants or are we calling for a mass reduction in meat consumption? Yeah. <clears throat> I, I think there might be a common theme with what I'm saying today. I, I really do think it's, it's different horses for different courses, and it absolutely has to be that way. So when you're talking about national policy for organizations, your dialogue and your message is different to when you have an individual in front of you, you know, who is a, a big meat-eating person, and it will depend on their circumstance, you know, what their means are to change, you know, down to where they maybe even live. So you can't tell them you have to cut down your meat and just have um, proteins just not going to wash. So they will probably just walk out the door and not do anything. You have to find out really what's going to motivate them. So again, it really, really does come down to insights, how you tell that story and how you build your communications really with them. That's the heart at the heart of everything that we should be doing as dietitians and nutritionists, which we're very good at. Thank you, Tanya. That was so interesting. Um, And I'd just like to finish by asking you a few more general questions. Um, So the first one is, what is the best advice you've ever been given? (sighs) Yes. Um, Look, I have had so much great advice over the years. I've been really privileged, a lucky duck, actually, in my life. Um, But I think one of the... the the greatest or or the best advice, I suppose, is get a mentor. You know, I was encouraged to do so by my parents from a very early age. And I've always done this wherever I've worked, whether it's been in clinical practice as a HIV dietitian back in the 1990s to working in marketing or in business. Um, And I I actually have a business uh, development mentor today and a personal coach you know, I love talking about through what I'm doing and bouncing. And if, you know, one is lucky enough to get someone with skills that you're lacking, that's where the music really happens. Um, You know, and as I head for the second part of my life, you know, I'm delighted to say that I'm also acting as a mentor now to others. And it's really fun and rewarding. So I would say that's been something that's really stood by me over the years. Yeah, that is a fantastic, fantastic piece of advice. It's um, it's amazing what a bit of mentorship can do and how much confidence it can give you. Um, so the the next question is, what's the most valuable tool to have as a nutritionist or dietitian? Yeah, you could choose so many, couldn't you? Um, I think for me, internet without a doubt. You know, I am so thankful to to Vinton Cerf and Bob Kahn, who were the computer scientists who um, invented it and made it freely available. And I really only have to think back to my university days to, to know how much it's transformed my life. You know, when I was doing my research in university, it would drive me insane 
having to find and chase literature papers in the library to only find that the one that I wanted was frequently missing. I mean, can you imagine that today? It's just, you know, alien to the way um, that we work. So we are so much more efficient today. We've got so much more available to us. We are very lucky. And today, much of my business and advancements have been made um, possible because of the internet. So definitely my number one resource. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I can't even imagine um, doing a degree without having your the internet and being able to find papers yeah. just or, or a computer. at your fingertips. Or I, a computer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great answer. Um, and finally, to wrap it all up, what is your favourite way to eat almonds? Right. So we there's actually two favourite ways. If I'm allowed, I'm going to be really cheeky. So one is um, we have this lovely glass jar in the breakfast cupboard. It's full of mixed nuts and seeds and dried fruit. And I love digging into that. And almonds are very much um, a part of that. So that's available to the whole family. I love it. And the other um, interesting way that I've started to use almonds recently is um, in my veggie curry. So I've got a couple of recipes, one in particular, where um, ground almonds add a huge amount of flavor and texture. And for some reason, my kind of big thing uh, friends absolutely um, love that recipe so very happy to share that out uh, with anyone that's interested <laughs> oh yeah definitely I, I would I'd be 100% interested um, do, do send it over thank you Tanya Hafner for being my guest on this episode of Kernels of Nutrition all other podcasts in the series can be found at almonds.co.uk and by searching Kernels of Nutrition on your chosen podcast app This series is available across all podcast providers, including Spotify, Apple, Google and Acast. Subscribe and follow to get a notification when the latest episode is out.